welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So today we're doing something different. We've been doing this podcast for a year, and we have never interviewed anybody ex except each other. Right, which which we do pretty regularly. Indeed. Um, but uh, today we thought we'd actually bring somebody else in, and uh, his name is Chris Clearfield. He's written a book called Meltdown, and uh, rather than me try to give all the background and tell you everything about what the book's about and everything, I, I thought maybe I'd just hand over to Chris so you can say hi to our listeners and tell us maybe just a bit first about where you come from and, and how you came to write this book, and then we'll start talking about why it's interesting to, to our listeners and, and to you. Sure, that sounds awesome. So uh, first of all, let me say, I, as I said, as we were kind of getting set up, I really love uh, the work that you guys do on this podcast. And so I'm, I'm really honored to, to be here. Um, I came to Meltdown to kind of thinking about these ideas through uh, a little bit of a circuitous path. I, uh, I was a science geek as an undergrad. I studied physics and, and biochemistry, and I, I thought I would go and do a PhD in, in biology and then ended up getting kind of... Um, sucked into the the Wall Street vortex, which was um, a really interesting place to be between 2006 and um, through the financial crisis. And so I kind of had this front row seat to this, you know, sort of major systemic failure um, as a relatively uh, young person early in my career. And I, I had this observation just sort of informally at first that, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I sort of had this theory that I could tell you that certain banks were going to do better, certain companies were going to do better coming through this crisis than others. And then I sort of took a step back and said, well, that, you know, that's interesting. I don't work at any of these places. You know, I, I have some conversations with them. And the place I worked at was um, a customer of, you know, firms like Citibank and Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. And so I, I know people there. I'm friends with people there. And I kind of have some technical interface with people there through the work. But it's really interesting that I could have a thesis that you know, from the outside, that something about the culture of the organization dictates how they are going to um, handle these kind of failures or this these kind of risks and challenges. And that was really where the seed of this idea planted. And then from that, um, uh, I got really interested in, I was also learning to fly as a um, training to be a pilot at the time. So I was kind of reading obsessively about um, airplane accidents. And then when, when Deepwater Horizon uh, blew up in 2010, you know, that was BP's big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, I sort of had this realization that this was a much bigger issue than kind of just technology, just finance. Um, it was it was a, a, a global issue that, that had a lot of um, moving pieces that this idea that kind of this intersection of technical technological failures and and sort of organizational factors could create these opportunities for these big blowups, and so I sort of became obsessed with that question, like why why some organizations build teams that thrive in these environments and and others don't. And so the the theory that that you that you talk about in the book that that you get from from lots of sources and and from your own research is that uh, there are ways to predict when a, a company or an organization or a system, like a software system or a, a, a nuclear plant or, or something else, a, a financial system, there are ways you, you can look at them and then you can predict, this one will survive, this one won't. Is, is that right? Have I understood correctly? Yeah, I think that's that's um, maybe a little bit of a stronger form than I would I would put it in. Um, so I'll say something about my co-author too. So my my dear friend and co-author, Andras Tilchik, um, he has his PhD in organizational behavior. And so one of the really fun things about working together with him was that we kind of melded this 
sort of my kind of systems and sort of practical practical kind of technology and and business experience with his um, you know academic rigor and also organizational perspective. And so that that was a really nice um, nice kind of mix of of that together. And so. I would say that, you know, the way we think about it is not necessarily that we can, it's a little bit like um, the, the kind of psychohistory from the from the foundation series, from the Isaac Asimov um, science fiction. It's it's not that, that we can specifically necessarily predict, you know, this is the kind of failure that's going to be in this company at this time, but more like we know some properties of the kind of systems or businesses that people do that tend to lead to these big kinds of systems failures and, and they're properties of the systems, but they're also properties of the team and of the organization and of the kind of context in which it's operating. in. so it's sort of all of those things. Oh, got it. Okay. So the subtitle says uh, why our systems fail and what we can do about it. So that's like a nice um, segue right into that. Um, what, what, why do the systems fail? Why do the organizations fail? What are the reasons behind that? What are the, the maybe not predictive, but um, the, the indicators that tell you there's, there's something going on here. This, this may have a problem. Right. Yeah. So it's, um, I mean, at the, at the systems level, we think about really two big factors. Um, one is complexity and one is something called tight coupling. And the research for this came out of a sociologist uh, who looked at the Three Mile Island nuclear meltdown in, in the 1970s in, in the U.S. And, and what he saw was that, you know, the official explanation of the accident investigation was that it was operator error, that the operators had done the wrong thing. And I think many technologists will appreciate how, how limited an explanation that often is. Well, why, you know, why did the operators do the wrong thing? Sort of, you know, what, what was the context that led them to that? Those, those kinds of things. And so, what Perot did is he really took a big step back and he was kind of one of the first people to do this. And, and he said, you know, the logic of this accident couldn't be understood for, you know, eight months, a year after the meltdown actually happened because it was so complex. And what he meant by complexity was that there were a lot of moving parts. There were a lot of possibilities of unexpected interactions. And beyond that, um, it was hard to tell what was going on in the system. It, you couldn't sort of send somebody into the nuclear core to take a look around. You had to rely on all these indirect indicators. And so it was really those two factors um, that for him represented complexity. Uh, and then the other bit is this tight coupling bit. And that's a term he borrowed from engineering. I'm sure it's familiar to a lot of your listeners. Well, we all we all talk about it in terms of object-oriented programming. So when we're building different pieces of, of, of code, we want them to be loosely coupled so we can switch them out and use a different one. But you're exactly. going to tell us how that can actually be a problem in systems design. Totally. And so so I think the 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 tight coupling that, that we think about is both, it, it, there is an element of exactly that, which is, um, you know, how kind of robust are your interfaces to, to changing? So can you, can you sort of swap out things? And as long as you have the same kind of style of inputs, outputs, do things still work? Or does everything need to be very precisely matched and, and kind of precisely timed? And the other bit about tight coupling is, is, is I think of it more of a temporal dimension, although it doesn't necessarily have to be time, you know, it can be a time scale of months or seconds, but it's just, how easy it is for you to intervene in your system once something has started to go wrong to get a different result. So in the case of a nuclear reactor, you know, once a meltdown is started, um, 
there's really not much you can do. You can't sort of wind back the clock. And you also, you know, th- there's the physics of, of the nuclear reaction itself. The reaction will keep going until it is sort of done, you know, until it is f- physically done. Um, but that's also true for, uh, you know, when we think about our technology system. So from, from a technology perspective, how easy is it for someone to intervene? Um, how, how gracefully does our systems degrade um, which, you know, might give us time to step in and fix things before we have a site-wide outage, things like that. So it's really this combination of complexity on the one hand and tight coupling that, you know, if you think about it as these kind of two axes in a little two-by-two grid, it's really that highly complex, tightly coupled system in the top right that is this danger zone, that is this this area where these kinds of failures are more likely. And our observation in in the book is that these kind of systems are becoming much more prevalent than they used to be, and, and that's a beautiful um, su- suggestion for for where we might go next. Jeffrey, I uh, I remember you. I, I think was it you who told me about Pero in his work. That's P E R O W. We'll we'll put link in the in the show notes to his his book uh, Normal Accidents. But Jeffrey, I remember you telling me you should read that book, Squirrel. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. And I think it was um, actually related to something we've talked about recently, which is sort of the DevOps movement and uh, uh, the idea of getting agile uh, principles getting out in the operations world. And um, one of the forerunners there, one of the thought leaders was John Allspaugh. And he uh, was was very much about learning from uh, the accidents that we have, the, the mistakes that we have. And it, to do that, you need to do a good investigation to understand the causes. And uh, Chris, you, know, you talked about how it's uh, operator error. And uh, he said that how you know empty that is as a reason, that you, but you don't really understand the, the system. And so he he's advocated in the DevOps world this sort of people understanding uh, the the history of of accidents and and how their functions the system rather than the operators. So normal accidents, uh, which we've been talking about, was was one of the ones there. But also stuff from Sydney Decker, such as just culture, um, yeah, and uh, you know making sure that you have an environment that's conducive to learning. Uh, it sounds like you recognize uh, the just culture reference right off. Right. So the whole I think the whole. Um the whole thing that the the kind of Sydney Decker perspective does and, and the thing that Oswald did a great job of kind of incorporating at Etsy um, is exactly this idea, this idea that if you can manage to view errors as a fundamental part of the process, then the important thing becomes not to not have errors, but to learn from them when they happen. And so Gee, it we sounds talk- like you listened to our podcast. <laughs> that, was, that was last week. That's great. I that do. I do, in ago. fact, yep. in fact, listen to your podcast. I know you do. Anyway, carry um, on. But it, it's exactly um, exactly that. And, you know, so c- with my background also in aviation, one of my mentors in thinking about this was um, a former National Transportation Safety Board accident investigator who's now a, a, a an airline captain for a major U.S. carrier. And you know, I think we, we, we talked with him about the book. He was a tremendous mentor for us. Um, and he has some, some kind of phrase that he talks about. It's basically like, if you shoot the messenger, then no one's going to bring you any more messages. And, and I think one of the fundamental things about a complex system is that you can't, in a complex system, you can't just sit down in a room with a whiteboard and write down all the ways the system's going to fail. You've got to be able to 
observe things and and kind of learn in real time. And um, we actually are doing work with an organization now who's very much bought into that um, all spall idea of the kind of postmortem process, but has also found that they need to figure out ways to add structure to really um, kind of go from that learning that might happen in a room of you know eight to ten engineers who are talking about a problem to how do they push that out through the company? How do they use that to inform you know what? new engineers need to learn what existing engineers might not know about their infrastructure and also frankly what you know what the the CTO and the VPs of of different parts of their engineering organization need to understand about the risk that's really sitting out there um, because you have these sort of maybe habitual or or structural causes of of issues so um, the just culture is really the foundation of that can I can I ask a question about this in particular because I I think what's interesting because if what you're describing is you know, it's one thing for a say a team or a, you know a, a, a small tight group, tight knit group of individuals to learn from a, a failure. They they have a, a problem, and then they learn from it. But now it sounds like you're trying to say like, how does the whole organization, the larger organization, learn from the group of the small team? Is that the challenge that you're looking at? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, um, so if you look at a company like like Etsy, when when a lot of these practices were sort of stood up. You know, they had um, on the order of 80, 100 engineers, something like that. And so if you have a room of, of 10 people that's discussing an issue, you know, suddenly you've hit 10% of the kind of engineering uh, organization. And if all of those people talk with one other person about it, you know, now you're in the, the 10, 20% range. And that's very different than um, an organization that is, you know, 400 people or even 200 people, right? Where as the infrastructure gets more complex, as there are more moving pieces, as you have more bits of code that were written, you know, for even a slightly different operating environment, um, it becomes more and more important to have this or have this learning process be organization wide instead of just at the level of the team. Well, and and you just you, well, I think you were talking about numbers. I find very interesting because you're very close to the Dunbar number, uh, which yes. uh, you know that uh, around 120 or so people, which is the number of people you can model in your head at one time. And so you're kind of and what since you're saying is when you pass the Dunbar number, you're no longer one tribe. And and so how do you how do you scale learning beyond the tribe limit of that? Is what I was thinking when you described this was the this sort of in software that we're not as good at this point of developing those systems but to contrast that with the book and you were talking about learning from aviation history you describe in there a, an accident that occurred where actually you know b- before they had their industry-wide um, knowledge sharing one airline ha- had undercovered the problem is that's the seems like a similar type of problem you're trying to solve in, in this context yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great um, that's a great bridge. That's a great connection um, because it, it that is exactly it. So there was, you know, there was a time when aviation in the you know the '60s and, and early '70s had a culture that was really um, you know kind of punitive and, and regulatory driven. Was not a just culture. And what people started to realize was that you can, you know, you cannot, um, you cannot enforce people into not making mistakes. Right. And, and the, um, you can't write a procedure that says don't make mistakes. 
Well, you can write it, but... Yeah, you can write it. <laughs> it's been written. Yeah, for following it is the, the, where the real trick comes in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but so in this in this particular example, it, it was kind of right at the forefront of this where um, United Airlines had stood up a a kind of very early um, near-miss reporting system. And, and they really said to flight crews, like, listen, we want you guys to report stuff that you know that might have been a safety issue but wasn't or seemed like a safety issue and there was a united flight that um got confused on an approach in the clouds to dulles airport and they came within probably about 200 feet of of hitting a mountain and they they landed and and realized this and they wrote this up and they submitted this to to united's um safety reporting system and united looked at this and investigated and basically wrote a memo to all of their pilots saying, look, there are these kind of ambiguities in the procedures around how you should descend. You have to be very, very aware of them. Um, and, and so that, that memo got circulated out. And, and just six weeks later, um, a, a TWA flight crew made the same mistake, and, except that they were not lucky. So they you know, ran into, I think, the, you know, the, the top 30 feet of this mountain, um, very similar circumstances. Everybody on board died. And this emerged in the accident investigation and, and the industry came out and said, you know, we, we can't have this anymore. We have to learn from the collective knowledge and be able to tap into that. And at the time, the solution was, um, because there was still this kind of fraught relationship with the regulators, the solution was to um, have NASA stand up an aviation safety reporting system uh, which is still in use today, and it's just this really fantastic resource of um, kind of catching these errors, actually getting the information to the regulators as appropriate, so they can make changes. And and you know, airlines also have their internal version of this, so they can change their procedures. And so now suddenly you have the whole industry learning, and and it's really a big piece of why aviation is so unbelievably safe today. Personally, I would draw a direct line between that. And something that we've discussed many times on uh, this podcast, which is the concept of psychological safety, and and the research from Amy Amy Emmonson, where she was describing how the nurses who reported the most errors actually had the you know the highest success rate because it, because they had a, an, an area that allowed them to learn, uh, and that's. Um, the software world is still, I think, catching up. It, in places where we've gotten to the point where we're going to learn from the failure and there's a no-blame culture. And, and you've, I don't know if you've come across the idea of fail cake. Is that something you've heard of? Um, no, what is fail cake? <laughs> it's new to me. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. Well, I'll be able to share this one then. So there is this concept of fail cake, uh, which is, um, you know, I caught an, caused an outage or essentially someone caused an outage, but then you, you learn from it and then you buy cake. Uh, to celebrate the fact of what you've learned. Now, I want to be clear on this. It's not like, it's not punitive. It's not like, oh, I caused the site to go down. Therefore, I owe people cake to make amends. It's not that. It's the company buys cake to celebrate the fact of what you've learned uh, uh, from this failure. So it's a way of normalizing discussion of failure and an emphasis of learning. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to start using that. Etsy has a, a sort of similar token which is only only yearly um but it's this the the three arm sweater award uh <laughs> that they give to the engineer who has broken the site in in the most interesting way possible right um, 
So if you if you you know if you if you can cause a, a 404 or a, you know a 500 error on Etsy's site, it will show you a three arm sweater as part of their uh, error message, or at least it did it did for a while. Um, they but they physically commissioned because they're Etsy. They physically commissioned a three arm sweater that that sort of hangs in the office and is awarded annually to someone. I've got an interesting example that um, goes the other direction, which I, I think you'll like, Chris. Um, I, I have a client who uh, makes things that are used in a medical kind of way. They, they're not uh, pacemakers or something like that. It's not that safety critical, but there's um, an element of diagnosis and biology and, and um, uh, evaluation for them. And um, we were sitting around discussing technical debt, one of uh, our, our listeners' favorite topics, I'm sure. And... Um, I was saying, you know, we, we want to address technical debt, but we're going to do some other things first. And somebody in the back stood up and said, I think we have a patient safety problem because I never trust that this particular piece of code is going to work. And I think it's going to give somebody a bad diagnosis. And I stopped everything. And I said, you know, how on earth could that be? You know, why, uh, how could we not have reported this? And we dug into it further and we, we found a lot of things that could help them report kind of like the, there actually were systems that are like the, um, the NASA system you were describing for, for airlines and so on, but the, the engineers didn't know about it. That was one of the problems. But another one that really sticks in my mind was the opposite of the three arm sweater um, reward the, the psychological safety, creating a culture that is just, that is uh, encouraging this psychological safety. One of the engineers said, well, you know, one of our KPIs, this always sticks in my mind, it's, it's really troubling for me. One of our key performance indicators is having fewer, what they call them in, in medicine, the medicine world is non-conformities, fewer things where that gives a bad diagnosis. And so if I were to report that we have a non-conformity, that would make this number go up. So I always worry that we don't report them. <laughs> And I said, yeah, I think there might be a connection there. <laughs> there might be something wrong in having a culture that doesn't give you a three-arm sweater, but in fact says um, this number went up. That's bad. And you, you're going to miss your bonus. Yes. And exactly. That was that was his thinking, was that we will not get our bonuses. There was a link between hitting all the KPIs and getting a bonus. And he said, I might not get my bonus. I said, please don't let uh, patients get bad data just because you won't get your bonus. He said, I don't want to do that, but it's challenging to, to have the, the cognitive dissonance. Yes. And I think it's so, um, these, these, this kind of constellation of examples is, is really beautiful because, um, you know, there is an element of incentives to it and, and the bonus thing, tying the bonus thing in, I would say is, is not, gr not great in this context, but <laughs> But but the the that's my expert view. Um, but but the truth is that that we humans are such social creatures that you can have measures that are much much more subtle than tying the bonus in that that have you know almost an equally magnitude effect on this stuff. And so what what I find interesting is that you know that Amy Edmondson paper. I love Amy's research. She um, she's a real trailblazer in this area, and she actually helped us review one of our chapters kind of which is about psychological safety more or less so we're really grateful to her but but one of the things that i love about the the kind of nurse nurse um, study that you were talking about was the the subtle things that correlate to people feeling psychologically safe um and one of them is you know the the kind of management style the leadership style of these nurse managers do they have an authoritarian or an open leadership style um how do they dress do they dress in scrubs or do they do they dress in a suit and mm. really interestingly that has a big effect on 
the psychological safety that their teams experienced. And I think there's a, you know, I mean, if we're talking about the tech world, most everybody, dress is not the way that that kind of um, tokens of of authority are marked usually. But I think the, the overarching point that's really interesting is that the way we respond to these things is so, so subtle. And we humans are so good at picking up on these power cues that as leaders, as managers, I mean, one of the things that when I'm working with, you know, in a coaching context, it's, it's this idea of, okay, like we, you know, how did you respond when somebody brought you that concern? You know, it's okay to be pissed off, right? But just say, I feel really pissed off. Like, I'm really, really glad you brought this, this problem to me. Like, I feel really pissed off now what can we learn from it? Like, it's okay, it, the, you know, it's better to acknowledge that you have real feelings because you're a real person than to try to suppress those. <laughs> but but the key is that pivot to curiosity and and then going from, okay, what can we learn about this? You know, why do you think this happened? Um, um, yeah, so I think that there's a real, there's a real subtle element of the the art of being a human here that that has a profound effect on how well organizations manage this type of thing. Hi there, Squirrel here, checking in from the future. You know what? We had a great time talking to Chris. We talked to him for a long time, and it wound up being way too long for just one podcast. So we're going to present this as several parts. So we're going to stop here on, on that wonderful note of the, the art of being a human. I think that might be the title of a future podcast. Right. So uh, as always, we love it when you click that subscribe button in your favorite app and you come back every Wednesday. Next Wednesday, you'll hear the next part of this podcast, uh, all this fantastic interview with Chris Clearfield. Uh, we move on to all kinds of uh, further interesting topics from his book, Meltdown. And if you want to get in touch with us, that's troubleshootingagile.com, where you'll find our email address and Twitter and anything else we can think of for you to get in touch with us, talk to us about the meltdowns you've been encountering and what you'd like to, us to talk about next. Great. Thanks. I don't even have Jeffrey here to say thank you to, but thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>